the dead. You know, I've never known anyone who doesn't have a curiosity, at least, about what happens in the afterlife. I mean, what really does happen when we die? Where do we go? How long does it take? What is that transition like? Can I take hell seriously? What is heaven like? What does all of this mean? And how do we live in light of these realities? I've never known anyone who isn't curious about that. And thankfully, the Bible says a good deal about it. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this new series that we kick off today. But you know, there's also been a proliferation of books and movies on this topic in recent years. You may be aware that one of the movies that just started this week in theaters all across the nation is called Heaven is for Real. It's based on the book that was first written back in 2010 by Todd Burpo, and it was on the New York Times bestseller list for 44 weeks consecutively. Incredible. And in this movie, this four-year-old boy, Colton, has a near-death experience, and as he's on the operating table, he later testifies that he rose up and he could see things that, that no mere human could have known. He saw that his father was in the chapel yelling at God. He saw his mother was in another room making calls, asking people to pray. And, and as the story unfolds, later they find he has information like he has a sister in heaven. And... The Burpos had had a, a miscarriage, and so indeed there was a baby girl that went on to heaven earlier. And so this kind of topic is intriguing to people. We wonder about those kinds of stories. But there's also books that tell about a different kind of experience that's a little less uplifting. For instance, one cardiologist, Maurice Rawlings, he's a doctor in Tennessee, and he wrote a book called Beyond Death's Door. And he tells about some of these experiences of some of his patients. And he tells about one patient who went into cardiac arrest right in his office. And so he began resuscitation. He began to try to bring the man back. And it was sort of, you know, here and there. The man would come back for a while and then he'd be gone again. And it was just nip and tuck for a while. But once when the man came back, and was breathing okay again, he said, don't stop, I'm in hell. And he said, don't you understand that when you stop, I go back there, please don't let me go back. True story. Dr. Rawlings says after this, this man actually repented of his sins, as you might imagine. Boy, that would get your attention, wouldn't it? And he became a real follower of Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to talk a little more about those kinds of stories in the next couple of weeks. But let's be clear on one thing up front. While those stories are incredibly intriguing, very interesting, our source of authority is the Bible, right? Not just subjective stories. So we're going to be looking into the Word of God in these days and seeing what it has to say about this all-important topic of what happens when we die. 
So as we kick it off today, I, I want to mention just uh, three things that the Scripture is pretty clear about. You might want to take some notes today, whichever location you're worshiping at. We're so glad that you're with us today. And I want to share three key things that Scripture's pretty clear happens when we uh, die and when we pass from this life. First of all, the Bible is pretty clear that your spirit is going to separate from your body. Your body will die, but the real you, what is often called the soul or the spirit, will go on living somewhere forever. Because you see, God designed us that way for us to go on living somewhere eternally. Now, obviously there are people in our culture who disagree with that. There are people often called naturalists who say, no, that's not true. There's no such thing as soul or spirit. The body, the material is all that there is. So when you die, you become food for worms. I've actually had conversations with people who truly believe that. They're utterly sincere. Nothing happens. There's no God. There's no afterlife. There's no heaven. There's no hell. You die, you die, that's it. I want to say to you, if that's your philosophy, if that's your belief, then probably existentialism would be your philosophy on life. You'd probably have a, a rather hedonistic view of just saying, look, if that's true, then I just want to grab for all the gusto I can. I want to have all the pleasure I can and the least amount of pain, and it doesn't really matter what I do after all. But the Bible says a pretty different story. The Bible says that we're not just body, but that we're also made up of soul and spirit. The real us goes on living somewhere. In fact, if you have your Bible there or your notes out, look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I love this whole passage. You may want to go home and read all of this a bit later. Paul writes, Therefore, being always of good courage... And knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer, rather, to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Now, if you go home and read that whole passage, you'll note that in the beginning of chapter 5, Paul says that living down here in this body is sort of like camping. Really, it's sort of like living in a tent. Now, I'd like to get a show of hands at all of our campuses today. How many of you have enjoyed vacationing by camping, or you really are into that? You love the whole sleeping in the tent thing. You love being in the great outdoors and all that. Can I see your hands? Raise them up high and proud. Wow, that's a lot of people. Thank you so much. Woo, we love camping. Now, I just want to ask those of you who raised your hand, you know about hotels, right? <laughs> I, I just want to be sure somebody had told you about that, okay? Now, I, I'm not really crazy about camping because, you see, vacation is very important. Vacation is defined in the dictionary as a time of pleasure, rest, and relaxation. Pleasure, rest, and relaxation. Camping, by definition, is defined as a time of discomfort, restlessness, and frustration. 
You know how it goes. You take the tent out of the bag where you stored it. Now, you stored it while it was still wet, so it's really moldy and it stinks and you have to air it out. And then when you finally get it aired out and get it set up, it sags in the middle and all the parts don't work like they're supposed to and it really smells moldy. Well, Paul says, look, that's what our bodies are like down here, really. They sag in the middle over time. Yeah. Parts don't work. And as we get old, we really smell moldy, okay? He says, that's what life is like down here. But make no mistake, just like camping... It doesn't last forever. And that, by the way, is my favorite thing about camping. It's only temporary, okay? And so the one thing we know Scripture says is going to happen is we're going to leave this body. One day they'll commit our body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But we do that in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection one day when God will transform our lowly body and give us a new glorified body. And friend, I don't know about you, but that gets me excited. And we're going to talk more about that two weeks from today when we talk about heaven, okay? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 4, for indeed while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened. And there was no statement the apostle ever made That is more true than that one. While we are in this tent, we groan. But good news, it's only temporary. The second thing we know with a great deal of certainty from Scripture is that you will know your eternal destiny. I want you to listen closely to this part. Because you see, through the years, we tend to collect these beliefs. They may or may not be biblical Uh, some of them are just definitely not biblical, and some of them, it's really virtually impossible to make a case for them biblically. Now, we're going to talk again about these next week, but I just want to quickly mention three of them today that have become incredibly popular through the years, and, um, uh, and yet they're difficult to support, if not impossible, from the Bible. One of them is universalism. Now, universalism is a popular belief today. And I think I understand why, because you see, it feels good. Here's what universalism says. It says one day, everybody's going to be saved. Love's going to trump everything. Love wins. One day, love will trump judgment, and everybody is ultimately going to be saved. No matter what they did with Christ, it's all going to turn out rosy for everyone. Wouldn't that be cool if that were true? I mean, honestly, it, it really would. The only problem is, is that that is nowhere to be found in the Bible, okay? But Scripture says that one day in the last days, and I think we're living in those days, it says people will not put up with sound doctrine, but they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And we live in a day like that where we tend to base our doctrine on what feels good rather than on what's actually true. A second belief that I've got a lot of empathy for, I just have trouble finding it myself in the Bible, is called annihilationism. Now again, tremendous respect to all my friends. I have believing friends who believe that, that those who don't know Christ, and this is what annihilationism teaches, that maybe after a time of judgment, 
after a time of purging, perhaps. And some believe there will be not even any judgment like that. When people die who don't know Christ and rejected Christ, they will just be annihilated. They will cease to exist again. I wish I could find that in the Bible. That would be really neat, especially for those who've rejected Christ. But personally, I have a lot of trouble seeing that belief. In fact, what I see the Apostle Paul talking about in a passage like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, where he talks about those who do not obey God and do not believe the gospel. He says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. All right? A third belief that's become incredibly popular through the centuries but we, we don't really get biblical support for, is this belief called purgatory. Purgatory. Now, I know many of you are parents. Can I see a show of hands? How many of you as parents, I know Debbie and I did this with our kids when they were really small children. One of the forms of discipline we used is a timeout. How many of you have used a timeout before? And You just put your kids in a timeout? Good. All right, cool. Well, purgatory is sort of like this hellish timeout, all right? It's where you go, uh, the idea says to be purged of certain venial sins, certain sins that you really didn't properly confess and get rid of down here, and you go and you, you basically pay for those sins. Now, I've talked to a lot of people in the Greek Orthodox tradition, Roman Catholic tradition, Protestant tradition about this. And most people I talk to agree there is really no solid biblical support for this. <coughs> in fact, I want to read to you a quote from the New Catholic Encyclopedia. The New Catholic Encyclopedia reads, and I quote, The doctrine of purgatory is not explicitly stated in the Bible. And that's true. It, it came through church tradition through the centuries and it wasn't really finalized and formalized until the Council of Trent in 1545. But it's the belief that even though Jesus died for our sins, we need to pay for them as well. And I would suggest to you that really that's the main problem with this particular belief. And it, it's kind of like God is getting double payment. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, look at what it says here. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Notice those words. You might want to circle them. He died once for all. And as some of you know, when Jesus died on that cross on what we call Good Friday, one of the last statements he made was, it is finished. That was a technical term that meant the payment for the sins of the world has been made in full, paid in full. In fact, we even have a hymn we sing. I love it. It's called, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. But the problem with the purgatory belief is that it requires a double payment. Jesus paid, but now you got to pay. And so there's all these beliefs out there, and we'll be talking about these, some of them in the next uh, couple of weeks. But the question is, since Scripture is our source and our authority, what does it really say happens when we die? 
Well, we know that our, our body and our spirit will be separated. We know that we'll know our eternal destiny. There won't be any doubt of that, about that. Even one minute after we die, we'll be quite certain of our eternal destiny. And those who have rejected Christ will go to a place, in the Greek it's called Gehenna, it's translated usually hell in the Bible, it's a place where God is not. We're going to talk about that next week. I think you're going to be intrigued by this topic. And one of the cool things you're going to love about next week is that we're not just going to talk about some of the facts, but we're going to talk about how we feel about that. Because if I know one thing about this topic, it's that it's kind of hard to reconcile what we know about God and what we know about that place, right? How do we reconcile a loving God and a place like that even existing at all? You don't want to miss next week. We're going to talk about that. But the other place the Bible says is an option is this place called heaven. Two weeks from today, we're going to look at that. I think you're going to be amazed at what heaven is really like and some of the things that we're going to do there. It's going to be exciting. In fact, not only do I want you to hear that, I believe that you've probably got a family member or two, a friend, who needs to get in on that message as well. And so the Bible says... In 2 Corinthians 5, 3, for we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. And so in heaven, you're not going to have the body you have now. Isn't that great? Oh, that's good news. Jesus' resurrection was the prototype of ours. That's what we're celebrating today. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what Easter's about. But when Jesus died on Friday, what happened? His body was put in a tomb, but his spirit, the real Jesus, went on living. That's what's going to happen with us. And what happened three days later? His spirit, the real Jesus, was joined with a new body, what the scripture calls a glorified or a resurrected body. It resembles the old enough to recognize it, but it's been made perfect, just like God wants it to be, without all of the negative influences of this world of sin. I don't know about you, but when I pause every now and then and just think about what awaits the true believer, I can hardly believe that God has something that glorious planned for us. And I want you to learn all we can learn together about that in the next couple of weeks. So there's one third thing I want to mention, and I think this one is really interesting, that's going to happen when we die. And again, there's so much discussion about this, and we're going to get into a little bit of the debate in the next couple of weeks. But here's a third thing that everybody tends to agree on who has any biblical orientation. And that is you will stand before God on the day of judgment when Christ returns. Look at what the apostle writes in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed. That means paid back or rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he or she has done, whether good or good. Or bad. Now, now, you know, can I just be really honest with you? 
When I read a passage like that that talks about judgment, and there are dozens of them, I just picked one for the sake of time, my immediate thought is, when I think about all my sin and all the ways I, Rex Keener, have failed God and all the ways I fall short, when I read a passage like that, I go, that ain't going to go well. You know? Ooh, I dread that day. That's not going to be good. It's like watching a slow train wreck. I mean, that is bad. But then, but then, I remember Romans 8.1, right? Therefore... There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so for the true Christian, for the true believer, this judgment day the Bible is so clear about is not going to be so much about our condemnation because well, there's no more condemnation for the true believer. It's going to be more about the grace of God. So let me mention a couple of things about that before we wrap up today. First of all, one of the reasons for this judgment day is so that God's grace can be revealed. I wish I knew a whole lot more of what that would ex exactly look like. It, here's a couple of options. You know, the Bible in Revelation talks about God opening these books and people being judged according to what's written in the books. It could be for the believer that God opens this book <coughs> and all the places where our sins should be listed... They're just blank. It could be like that, you know. It really could. Because the Bible does say that Jesus forgives our sin, God forgives our sin, and he throws them into the deepest sea. He remembers them no more. So it could be like the pages are blank. And we know that we get to heaven not because of our performance, but we get there because of what Jesus did. His goodness, his righteousness is imputed to us. So that could be a possibility. And boy, that would be overwhelming enough. But I've often thought of another scenario that I think could be even more overwhelming and remind us even more of the grace of God. It could be that when God opens the big book, it could be that every single sin and transgression we've ever committed is listed there, and God walks through them with us, because there's eternity to do this, right? He walks through them with us one by one, and he says, and I forgave that, and I paid for that, and I took care of that, and I forgave that. And boy, then we'd really be overwhelmed, right? Imagine it like this. Imagine you turn 18 years old, and you get this credit card in the mail. And even though you've seen your parents use these plastic things before, you honestly don't have a clue how it works. And so one day, when you're in the store, you just, you try it, and wow, you're able to buy stuff. You have, honestly, you're so naive, you have no idea that you have to pay a bill one day, okay? And so you start using this card, and you buy everything with this card. And you're thinking, well, somewhere the shoe's got to drop, right? Somewhere there's got to be something happening, but you never get a bill. You never take note of anything. And this goes on month after month, and you never get a bill. And you just start paying for everything with this magic piece of plastic. You pay, you pay for your clothes at the mall. You pay for your books at school. You pay tuition with it. You pay for spring break. You pay for vacations. You put gasoline in your car. All these things are going on the card. And one day, five years later, 
your dad calls you up and says, someone called from the credit card company. You got this huge bill need to be paid. Your dad pauses and he says, I just want you to know, even though it cost everything I had, I took care of that. And it's like you went to your father's house and you sat down, and instead of having the credit card statement there, a little paper on the desk, it's this massive book. It's like an encyclopedia. And your dad on Judgment Day opens it up, and he begins to walk through, and he says, exactly five years ago today, you bought a pack of peppermint gum at the convenience store. And exactly 364 days and 12 hours and 37 seconds ago, you bought a dress at the mall. And he goes, I paid for that, and I paid for that, and I paid for that. And boy, wouldn't you feel overwhelmed. That's what the grace of God is like, friends. And if there's anything we can celebrate on this Easter resurrection weekend, it is the fact that God's grace is amazing in our lives. There's one other thing I want to mention. One of the reasons for Judgment Day is so our rewards can be unveiled. You see, when we think of judgment, we usually think negative things, right? We think... of punishment and condemnation. But don't judges do other things as well? Don't judges hand out ribbons sometimes? Don't judges sometimes put medals around your neck? And don't judges at times place a crown on someone's head? You see, in the Church, we don't talk about this a lot because we don't want people to get the wrong idea that you get to heaven by your good works and what you earn. You get to heaven one way, trusting in what Jesus did for you. But believers, listen, the Bible says a whole lot about rewards. And this scripture is one of my favorites in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at what it says. His work will be shown for what it is. It's talking about the man or woman of God Because the day, meaning judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he's built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. That means that our works in this world, how we stewarded this one and only life, will be tested by God and will be rewarded accordingly. We don't get to heaven according to that. We get to heaven by trusting in Jesus. But we do get rewarded according to how we stewarded all that God gave. So the question is, since all these things are true, what are we supposed to do with this one and only life? What really matters? Since I was a young teenager... James chapter 4, verse 14, has been one of the most intriguing thoughts in all the Bible to me. It says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Isn't that an amazing thought? What a picture of how brief life is. That says that this is your life. I want you to watch this. Nice knowing you. That's you. 
Here's your life. Thanks for the memories. See you later. That's you. We sing that song, Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. What an awesome thought. I don't think we can wrap our brains around that very well. Let's stretch that 10,000 years the song talks about to 50,000 years. And let's try to understand this today once for all. How brief this life is. Let's suppose you live that eternity is 50,000 years. Now, again, that's just the beginning of eternity, right? But let's say you go 50,000 years into eternity. And let's say that on this earth, you live to be 80. Do you know what part your 80 years down here would be compared to that 50,000, that 50,000 in eternity, from the time you're born to 50,000 years later. Do you know what that would be? 0.16%. That's what your life down here would be. Do you know what 0.16% is? That's it. Just want to make sure you caught that. That's what 0.16% really is. And here's the bottom line, since that's true. Who you marry is important. Where you live, important. What you do vocationally, important. Where you go to school, important. But what really matters is what you do in that 0.16% with Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray a prayer right now. And I'm going to invite you to do what we've literally seen hundreds of people do throughout the years that this church has been around. We've seen so many people open their lives to Jesus Christ. And I invite you to do that right now because you're living in the 0.16% right now. And what really matters is what you do with Jesus. This is going to be an amazing journey in these next few weeks, but I want to be sure you're ready for the journey. I want to be sure that you're prepared because heaven is for real. The afterlife is a reality, and I just want to be sure that you're prepared. Would you bow your heads, please? I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer with me right now. And if God has spoken to your heart today and prepared you for this moment, maybe you never dreamed that when you came today you'd pray a prayer But God has spoken to you, and you're convinced, I need God in my life. Would you pray this prayer with me? Just say it silently right where you are. Just say it silently from you to God. Oh, God, thank you for your love. Thank you for caring for me. I confess that I've broken your laws. I'm like that kid in the illustration who's got so much debt racked up. That's me morally. I need your grace. I need what Jesus died to pay for. 
please forgive my sin. Come into my life and make me new. Father, I pray for all those who've opened their lives to Christ today and just begun that journey. A lot has led up to this moment, but this is just the starting line of a brand new life. Thank you for your amazing grace. And I pray that you would keep them, protect them, get them connected to all kinds of people and resources where they can flourish and grow in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.